Let's pray again. Father, your word is truth, and it's truth that your spirit uses to not only speak to us, but to transform us. God, would you help us to take in your word and your truth this morning? And Lord, might we leave change because there's something that we've heard from you that becomes part of our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's do a few prayers here, very, very brief ones. Dear God, thank you for the baby brother, but what I prayed for was a puppy. Dear God, I love Easter and Christmas. Could you please put another holiday in the middle? There's nothing good in there now. And last, dear God, could you please send Mikey Johnson to another summer camp this year? Why is it always Mikey, anyway? What? What is with that? We're in Colossians 1, verses 9 through 14 this morning, and the topic is prayer. And it's both the topic is prayer, but also what prayer looks like when someone who knows God well prays for something else. So it's both the topic, but it's also the substance of that. You know, even to Christians, if you talk about prayer, you typically get one of two responses. One is a sigh or a yawn. And the other is a pang of guilt. I don't pray. I realize I don't pray or I don't pray often enough. You know, for a Christian, prayer broadly should be sort of like breathing. It's something we do all the time, sort of even without thinking about it. It's not that we have to work ourselves up to pray. That's what we do. It's because we're in a relationship. Because as Christians, we've come into a personal relationship with a person with God himself and so prayer is just we what we call our conversation God word Christians should pray it should be normal it should be like breathing if it's a relationship and we're not talking to the other person what kind of relationship is that anyway so God speaks to us primarily through the scriptures through teaching or quiet times or the scriptures other people share with us and we talk back in prayer. Prayer should be a normal, very normal part of our life, part of a relationship. But also, as we mature in Christ, our prayers should mature also, whether we're thinking of how we pray for ourselves or what and how we pray for others we know. You know, as new Christians, or like these children's prayers, as a young person or as a child in faith, I might pray simply things like God bless so-and-so. And that's fine, and God takes that. That's a good thing. But if that's the way a mature believer prays, if that's the limit of our prayer, it probably means we actually aren't mature. So we get both a model of prayer in Paul's life here, but also the things that he prayed for his friends in Colossians. So as we read through the text and talk through this a bit this morning, Ask yourself, one, do I pray? Is prayer a normal part of my life? Is that personal relationship I have by virtue of faith in Christ, spirits inside me, I have that relationship restored with God the Father, am I talking to my Father? Am I talking to my Savior? Is that a normal part of my life? And then also, have my prayers grown up as I've grown up in the faith? Has the knowledge that I gain from God's Word has it changed the way I pray for others? Do I pray baby prayers, Mikey Johnson prayers, or am I praying grown-up, mature prayers, like we'll see from Paul here this morning? 
So Colossians 1, 9-14, I'm reading from the ESV. Paul says, And so from the day we heard, we heard about your faith in Christ, your hope and your love. So from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. And by the way, ESV parses this here, including joy at verse 11. As some of your translations may attach this to the next verse related to giving thanks. So what I say a little later will impact the way your Bible's uh, uh, broken up there or not. Uh, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. By the way, if you get a chance, if you read through Ephesians 1, Paul's prayer there, very, very similar to this one. You'll see the same themes highlighted there. In verses 9 and 10, Paul prays for knowledge and listen to the way he links his prayer in knowledge, this grown-up mature prayer. Knowledge of God's will, wisdom and understanding, so that, verse 10, you can walk, or we would say live, worthy, pleasing God, bearing fruit in good work, and then increasing in more knowledge. So, two things on this count. First is God's knowledge and wisdom. Paul prays that they'll grow in knowledge, but he qualifies that. And he says it's spiritual knowledge and understanding. You know there's a lot anyone can learn in this world. There's lots of knowledge. There's lots of information. There's lots of data and facts and opinions available. So when Paul prays for knowledge, it's not any knowledge. It's a very specific kind. It's spiritual in nature. It has its own kind of discernment with it. So it's spiritual knowledge and understanding. We want to be careful that when we grow in knowledge, all kinds of competing voices for this is the truth, this is what you should do, this is what you should think or believe. But Paul wants us to get the knowledge that comes from Christ and from His Word. It's spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 2. He wrote there to a church very similar to Colossae in the Roman Greco world of their day. Just like ours, lots of competing voices. And Paul said there, uh, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have received, as Christians, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we might understand the things freely given us by God. We impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. Paul's distinguishing here, you can get different versions of knowledge. And the knowledge Paul prays for and the knowledge you and I should be seeking is not the knowledge the world has afforded us. It's spiritual in nature and it comes from the Spirit of God Himself. It comes through the Word of God and the Spirit of God makes that real to us. 
So Paul wants us, them and you and me today, to grow in knowledge, but it's spiritual and it comes from God. You know, oftentimes when a person faces a crisis in their life, uh, painful enough or desperate enough that they need help, they're willing to start looking around and saying, where can I get help for my problem? And you know, as Christians, if, you, if your marriage is in trouble, if you've got financial issues you're looking at, if, you've got, if you feel discouraged and depressed so that your life is marginalized, where do you go for help? Who do you go to for help? If I go to a secular counselor, psychologist, or psychiatrist, am I getting God's wisdom, spiritual understanding and discernment to my life, the knowledge that I need? Am I getting it through those vehicles? By the way, I'm not specifically speaking against secular anything. I'm just saying, if we need help, where are we going for the information that will help us? So the knowledge here is qualified. It's spiritual in nature. If we find crises in our life, if we find needs where we realize, gosh, I need some help, we need to get spiritual wisdom and understanding. Knowledge broadly isn't what we're after. We're after the knowledge that God gives through His Word and by His Spirit. So we've got to be careful about who our knowledge source is. Where are we getting our information? Who do we believe? Whose version of knowledge are we buying into? Is it spiritual? Is it from God? Is it the Holy Spirit and God's Word? Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. God is the source of the knowledge we need, Paul says. You know, in the Garden of Eden, this is interesting because it's still alive today, you know, this whole scenario. So in the Garden of Eden, what does Satan tempt Eve with? I mean, the fruit is the temptation, but what does he say you'll get if you eat that? He says, you'll know. You'll be like God because you'll know something. You'll gain knowledge. But he didn't say that the knowledge you'll gain to be like God of good and evil will be because you've chosen evil. Because you're now evil. You'll be like God, sort of, because you've gained knowledge. There's all kinds of knowledge to be had. It's not equal. It's not all desirable. Some knowledge we're not after. Some knowledge just brings death. That's not what we're looking for. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, these are those great memory verses that all Scripture is inspired by God. It comes straight from His mouth, right? He spoke it. All of Scripture is spoken by God. And it's profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness that the man or the person, the lady, the child of God may be equipped for every good work. So the kind of wisdom and knowledge we're after comes from God, it's from the Scriptures, and it equips us for whatever comes our way. So when we're thinking about knowledge and growing in knowledge here, it's God's knowledge, it's spiritual knowledge. The Spirit of God making real the things from God's Word. Be careful. With that, are we reading our Bibles? By the way, just let me ask again. Are we reading our Bibles? Is that part of our daily life? Is getting up, is reading it, is thinking about it, is memorizing it, turning it over in our minds, talking to others about it? Is that part of our life? Guys, our brains, they're sponges. And we soak stuff up all the time. And you know, for a lot of us, it's television, it's radio, it's 
the internet, it's magazines, it's books, it's everything but the Bible that basically becomes our information, our knowledge source and base. If we're not in the scriptures, our minds aren't being conformed to God's kind of spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's the only place we're going to get it. So Paul prays for knowledge. It's qualified. It's spiritual knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. The Spirit of God gives it through His Word. Now, the other thing about that is this. Um, This knowledge is not knowledge for its own sake. Paul, again, I'm going to quote him liberally this morning, 1 Corinthians 8.1. Paul says, knowledge, we might say mere knowledge, puffs up, but love edifies. If I just want to grow in how much data I know, if I just want to be able to impress people with how many Bible verses I've memorized, that's not what Paul's talking about. This is a great equation. This knowledge is part of an equation here. God wants us to learn so that we obey Him, so that there's this great fruit produced in our life and through our life, and after that happens, we start learning more. There's a process here that Paul's talking about related to us growing in knowledge. So it's knowledge, it's obedience, it's fruitfulness, and then it's more knowledge. So if you want to think about it, it's an ascending spiral. It goes up and one step is predicated on the one in front of it. So Paul's not talking about us becoming geniuses, founts of knowledge and data and facts. He's talking about us gaining some new piece of truth and knowledge, doing it, working it into our life. He says that will produce fruitfulness in us and through us. And then guess what? Then you'll grow in knowledge again and the whole thing will start over. You know the problem for a lot of us? We get to step one. Maybe we read our Bible. And we think, wow, that's cool. Or that's hurtful. Does God really mean that? Does this require a change in my life? And it stops there. Do you know that there's a significant degree to which if we as Christians are not implementing the truth of God's Word, we're not growing. If you've been a Christian for years and you look at your life and you say, you know, I'm not really where I want to be, Or I feel like I've known the Lord for 10 or 20 or 30 years, but I don't know that much or there's not been that significant kind of transformation in my life. I can almost guarantee, almost 100%, it's an issue of disobedience. God doesn't give you more knowledge if you're not doing what you're supposed to do already. And that's Paul's equation here. Knowledge from God to us is meant to be implemented in our life. This is James. You know, I don't want to hear God's Word and then I forget it and I go away and I forgot all about it. You know, James says we want to be doers of the Word. That's the same thought here. There is truth that you will not and cannot learn unless you're already willing to obey God. If obedience isn't part of your life, if fruitfulness isn't part of your life and what you already know, don't expect God to give you new vistas of knowledge and spiritual understanding and discernment. Because we're not being faithful with what He already gave. Faithfulness to God is a big deal. So if God gives us wisdom and knowledge and truth, if we refuse to implement that, we have stopped that process of our our growth in knowledge and spiritual understanding. 
It's predicated on obedience. Jesus said this in John 7.17. This was specifically related to His claims to deity. He said, if anyone is willing to do His will, if anyone is willing to do God the Father's will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. Jesus coupled the willingness to obey with the ability to perceive. If I learn some new truth, God's given that to me so that I can do it. And if I refuse to do it, I've stopped this equation of growing in knowledge and spiritual wisdom and understanding Paul's talking about. If I'm not willing to do what God has already shown me, God's not interested in giving me more. So there's huge areas of of life, arenas that you and I are in every day, in which our ability to know more, grow in wisdom, is directly tied to our willingness to obey what we've got. So again, if you look at your life and you say, I haven't grown the way I should, as we look at the lives of others, by the way, this is a huge, huge issue in the church today. If you read the best-selling Christian authors today, they're all about the difference in claims to Christianity and reality. And it's because the church is by and large in the United States filled with people who say they're Christians, but they don't live like it. They don't live transformed lives. And so these guys around the country and the church are trying to come to grips with that. What's at stake here? What's going on? Are the churches filled with people who've never trusted Christ and therefore live consistent with their lost condition? Is it, or is it possible really that these folks are by and large Christians that simply disobey God so routinely they look like the rest of the world? This is a huge question. It's, it's generating the, the purchase of tons of books around the country today. It's this thing. So Paul connects our willingness to obey what we know and the fruit that it will produce, because when you and I take in God's Word and we obey, it will produce fruit. It always will. It will produce fruit in us, and it will produce fruit through us. But if we disconnect that, we don't grow in knowledge and spiritual wisdom and understanding. Hebrews 5 is a classic example of this. When the author writes to them, he says, guys, I wanted to talk to you about these deep, great truths about Christ, but I realized I couldn't, because you're spiritual babies. And it's like you're still drinking milk, and I wanted to serve you up a fine steak, but I realize you're not ready for steak. You're still drinking milk. And he says there, solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You see, there's this repetition. There's this thought that I know the truth, and I practice at it. I work at it. And as I do, I grow in my discernment. But the letter writer to Hebrews said, you guys haven't grown up and you should have. You're not doing it. And so I can't talk to you about higher spiritual things. So this is the deal. God shows us truth. This is Paul's version of learning. I get new knowledge and truth from God. I'm supposed to obey it. As I do, it produces fruit. And when that's happened, the process begins again. And so I have this this circle ascending in which I'm continuing to grow but it's predicated on obedience and faithfulness and fruitfulness. 
Now this is part of Paul's answer to the heretics in Colossae who are telling them that there's this higher spiritual life to ascend to. And they're saying that we get there by harsh treatment of our bodies through ascetic practices and through knowing particular angels that will act as our mediators. And Paul says, well, no, actually, this is the way you grow. God gives you knowledge. You obey it. There's fruitfulness. And God gives you more knowledge. That's the way God grows us up, not by their versions we'll see later in chapter 2. So Paul prays this mature prophet, when he's thinking of someone else, he prays that they'll grow in knowledge. And it's not mere head knowledge. It's a knowledge that's acted on and it produces fruit. The second thing he prays for is that they would have power. Verse 11, may you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. And, and this isn't power the way I tend to think of it either. You know, if I prayed for power for myself spiritually, it would go something like this. Lord, uh, just give me your checkbook. That's God's power. Give me your checkbook. And I will go out and I will spend this money wisely. I will see life and I'll see people's needs. And, you know, and I've got your checkbook. I've got your power. And, and I'll write those checks out, Lord. And you'll be at home, you know, taking care of things there. I'll be out representing you. And won't this be great? I'll have the ability to do it. I see fit. And won't that be great? And that's not quite what Paul's talking about here when he prays that they'll have power. You know, power's energy, right? It's the ability to perform things. But he qualifies power here just the way he did knowledge. Not just knowledge. It's not knowledge that impresses your friends in the world. And this isn't power that will impress others generally either because he qualifies what kind of power it is. Power producing endurance and patience with joy. Again, your translation may not include joy in this uh, I am here this morning. So, power for endurance and patience with joy. That's the kind of power Paul's praying for them. Endurance means to be steadfast, unswerving, unwavering. I keep going in the same direction. Endurance. Patience is long-suffering. If we transliterate Greek, that's what it really means. It means to suffer long without blowing up, without losing hope. This is one of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Long-suffering. I can put up with something or someone or a bad situation for a long time, and I can do it without losing my faith or my cool. So I endure. I keep going in the same direction. I do it without complaining. I suffer long, literally. And I do it with the strength of God's joy. By the way, again, this is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. When Paul prays for power here, it's not explosive power that's manifested to other people that lifts me up. You know, you think of Paul. He could have prayed that they would have the kind of power he exercised, right? So he, he cast out demons. Now, Christians have authority, frankly, to do that. He did it impressively, perhaps. Uh, he, wrote, he raised uh, from the dead. Paul raised from the dead. That's a pretty neat trick. That's a pretty, pretty good use of power, raise the dead. But when he prays for them for power, he's not talking about this kind of power specifically. Power to endure, power to suffer long, power to do those things in the joy of God. It almost sounds like a trick, doesn't it? Power, but it's power to endure patiently, steadfastly, with joy. That means suffering, doesn't it? 
Paul's talking about power to endure suffering, guys. That's where, where this penny lands, power to endure suffering. This is a little bit like Isaiah 40. Uh, you know, young men and athletes, no matter how virile and strong and no matter how good they're training, what do they do at the end of the day or the race? They, they fall down, don't they? They wear out, you know, Isaiah 40. But those who wait on the Lord, well, they, they gain new strength, right? And, and they rise up on wings like eagles. And, and they can run and not grow weary. And they can walk and not faint. Why? Because it's God's strength that's carrying them through. Well, that's the thought here. Paul's praying that they'll have strength or power to endure suffering. Suffering's not a popular topic in the church, but that's the call here. Uh, Paul, again, in that last letter he writes in 2 Timothy 4, says, uh, Timothy, always be sober-minded, endure suffering. Endure, persevere, don't, don't swerve, don't waver, keep going. Do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. He says of himself there, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. What does that mean? He's persevered. He's endured. This is a guy who led a hard life, by the way. Right? Philippians and 2 Corinthians, when he describes his lifestyle, he was stoned, he was beaten, he was imprisoned, he was starved, he was shipwrecked, he was betrayed. That's Paul's life. But he still says at the end of the day, I finished the race. I endured. I suffered long. And I had Christ's joy in the doing. He's an example of what he preaches. You see the same thing, Romans 5, 3-5, Paul there says, we rejoice in suffering. Is that your experience? Do you, do you and I tend to rejoice in suffering? You see, we're called to it. So when Paul prays for their power, it's anticipating suffering in their life. And he says in Romans, we rejoice in our sufferings. We know that suffering produces, guess what? Endurance. Exactly what he's talking about. Power to endure. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Similar themes to Colossians 1. Faith, hope, love. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Spirit. But joy is connected to suffering for Paul. It's also connected to suffering for James, Jesus' half-brother, James 1, count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when trials of various kinds come to you, they test your faith, and the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, perseverance, endurance. So Paul's prayer for power is not a flashy power. It's the power for you and I to keep going, to keep the faith, to endure with joy, through the suffering that is going to be your lot and mine. This is no different, by the way, than Jesus. You think of Hebrews 12. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured. Same thing. Suffering, joy, and endurance all tied together for the apostle. They're meant to be tied together for us as well. If you apply this today, we, we are not suffering as Paul did. Remember, he wrote this from prison. We're not in prison today here. You know, most of us aren't going to jail for being a Christian, for Christian witness, certainly not in the United States. Uh, perhaps occasionally. 
perhaps occasionally. But it doesn't mean this is without application. Uh, sometimes you'll find yourself in a job that you'd rather not be in, and that might feel like suffering to you. You might go through spells in a marriage that feels like suffering to you. You might go through durations in your parenting that feels like suffering to you. Suffering is going to be part of our lot in life. We're, we're called to it. Matter of fact, Paul will bring this up later, kind of a strange verse in chapter 2, where he talks about filling up the suffering of Christ, that Christians are called to suffer. And we forget that part of the call, but we're called to suffer. So Paul prays, Paul's suffering persecution, he's suffering. And he says, you're going to suffer too. And I'm praying that when you do, you have the power of Christ there to endure, to persevere. Suffering long with the strength of Christ's joy. So he prays for knowledge and he prays for power, not the kinds we would typically think of. The last thing he prays for them is simply that they'll give thanks, that they'll have a prayer life, if you will, like he had, which was about giving God thanks. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. We talked about thankfulness last time and I'm not going to spend really any time here this morning, but a thankless Christian should be a contradiction in terms. A thankless Christian, like a prayerless Christian, if I'm in a relationship with God, talking to Him would be the natural, appropriate thing to do. And if I'm a Christian, and we'll talk about this in just a second, if I'm in a relationship with God the Father, through Jesus the Son, engineered by the Holy Spirit, how can I not be thankful? If I know what I've been saved from, how could I not be thankful? How could a Christian not be thankful? How can that not be a part of everyday existence? Thank you, God, for who you are what you've done. Let's look at a couple of those ways Paul does here. The last point here, verses 13 and 14, Paul gives them the cause for prayer and thanksgiving. He says, because you've been qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Why should you be thankful? Colossians or us in Topeka today. Why should we be thankful? Why should thanksgiving and prayer be normal for us? Because we've been qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints. We have an inheritance as Christians that we should be thankful for. Verse 13, we should be thankful because He has delivered us, the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He has transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. To be a Christian is, in fact, to leave one kingdom, one world system for another. One world system that, that actually is after our death. It's ruled by the God of this world, by Satan himself. It has its own value system, its own knowledge sources. And we've been saved out of that. It always brings death. And we've been instead transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. That's what's true of us as Christians. In whom, verse 14, we have redemption. What does that mean? It means our sins are forgiven. I talked to a nice gentleman some time back and He'd gone to church and he had nothing against the gospel, so to speak, you know. But his bottom line was sort of, I'm a nice guy, God's a nice guy. And he'll, he'll understand that. And I said, well, I've, I've heard you out. I've listened to what you have to say. I, just one question for you. And it's this, what do you do with your sins? What do you do with your sins? 
Because you're a sinner. Everybody's a sinner since our first parents, since Eve, our first mom. We're all sinners. So God's holy. I know that because the Bible says God's holy. And you're not. You've got sin. So what do you do with that? You're not okay. We're not okay. You've got a sin issue. But to them, Paul says, nope, you're redeemed. Why? Because your sins are forgiven. They've been taken care of. Guys, on the worst day of my life, my short life, my hand-breath life on this earth, if I know my sins are forgiven by a holy God and I have eternity to come with Him, I've got all the reason in the world to give thanks. To live thankfully. To pray thankfully. That, that alone. The most difficult, challenging life on earth. It's nothing if my sins are forgiven. If they're not forgiven, it's another thing entirely. Let me just hit on these a couple points at a time. They share in the inheritance of the saints. We don't grasp this, and the Scripture tells us little bits, but it's hard to say what does that really look like. But we know, for instance, that Christians will rule the, the eternal future universe with Jesus. That's restated a couple times in his epistles in the opening chapters of Revelation. You're going to be a co-ruler with Jesus Christ, with God himself, of his future eternal kingdom. That's the inheritance of the saints. Helping rule the universe. That, I don't know what that'll look like. Will there be a steering wheel that I get to sit behind? or what? I don't know, but it'll be good. Or we'll be in the new Jerusalem. You know the tree of life that our first parents, they didn't get to eat, did they? God, God pushed them out of the garden and said, no, don't eat that now. You're in a sinful condition. But guess what? It grows along the river of life that comes from the throne of God in the new Jerusalem. And we'll be there. I don't know what it'll look like, or what it'll, but it'll be good. You'll want it. And we'll be there. That's part of our inheritance. Strolling down the streets of our city, the new Jerusalem. That's part of the inheritance of the saints in life. We'll also have meaningful work. This doesn't always sound good, but if you are made by God to do something well, and you love that thing that you do well, and God gives you infinite resources and time to do it, you'll love it. And that's part of your inheritance. We won't be bored in heaven. You'll never be bored. In fact, the excitement, I think, will just grow over time. That's part of our inheritance. We'll be the grown-up version of what God wants us to be. And we'll get to do the things He's uniquely created us to be and to do forever. It'll never get old. You'll never get tired. That's part of our inheritance. We've been saved out of darkness and into Jesus' kingdom and light and life. That means instead of death, we get life. Guys, everyone dies physically. We all die. We die. We die. But Jesus said in John 11, you know what, if you believe in me, even if you die, you'll live. So we get life instead of death, Paul says here. Instead of a life shrouded in darkness, we get light. You know, for us, this means things like moral darkness. It means spiritual darkness. It can mean depression and discouragement. We trade that for a life of encouragement that's described by Paul as light. The kingdom of His Son. We leave the old dark things behind. Instead of hell, we get heaven. There's a real hell. There's a real hell. You know, I think even as Christians, we forget that today. There's a reason Christians are called to spread the gospel, to communicate the gospel, because hell is real. And if we carry the weight of our own sins, hell is our future. 
lake of fire prepared for the for Satan and his fallen angels, but we join him there if we choose to stay in his kingdom. There really is a real hell, and Paul says you're saved out of that. Guys, that's enough to give thanks every day, every breath, every moment. Instead of being subject to the destroyer of men's souls, the one who robs and kills and destroys, we get the Lord of life. We get the Lord of life. The Lord, you know, off, or the, the world offers certain versions of life, but it's not life. I was talking to our friends this morning. When I was a college guy, if somebody looked at my life, they said, man, he's got it made. He, he's at a big university. He's running track. He's fairly handsome, right, Kath? I mean, uh, <laughs> successful in a number of ways, let's just say. And, and I was miserable. I was suicidally miserable. I was lonely to the depths of my being. And if someone said, Mike, I'm partying. I'm doing all the things I want to do. And I was, it was death. It was, I was, it was terrible. I was miserable. God saved me out of that. I didn't get that all in the moment. I knew my sins were forgiven. And I knew I was going to heaven. And that transformation, that work that God needed to do, it took quite a long while for me to finally get in gear. I look like many in the church do today. It's like, oh, my life is supposed to change. Okay. I was a little slow coming around, but I knew what it was to be without Christ, to be without God, and to be without hope. Those are Paul's words in Ephesians 4. And if you're a Christian, you've got hope because you've got an eternal future, gloriously so, with Christ in heaven. We trade death for life. We've got something to be thankful for. Now let me say this very, very clearly. These things, this inheritance, this future, Christ's kingdom, this is only true if you're a Christian. It's only true if you're a Christian. And make no mistake, if you're not a Christian, these things are not true of you. And, and please don't think that they are. I mean, as serious, dead serious as I can be. If you're not a Christian, these are not true of you. You bear the guilt of your own sins, and hell is your future. Guys, it couldn't get any worse. Couldn't get any worse. Paul's description, though, it, it can be your future, just like it was mine. I was a louse, I was self-centered, I was self-serving. I didn't know up from down. I mean, I knew better, but I wasn't doing the little that I knew. And, and Christ came in and saved me. You know, put the pieces together. It's like, that's it. I get it now. Well, that's what God wants to do for us. You don't have to bear the weight of your own sins. Just like, I'm not. I'm, I'm free, you know. I'm free. And we can be free. You can be free. Because it's as simple as accepting the free offer of eternal life. Jesus paid for us to have. His, sin, his sin-bearing role on the cross, His blood, covers our sin. So you don't have to bear your own sins. You don't have to have hell as your future. You don't have to live in the kingdom of darkness. You can live in the kingdom of God's beloved Son, and you do so by simply accepting the free offer of eternal life He makes through Christ. Jesus is it. It's not us plus. It's Jesus did it. We say, thank you, Lord. I'll take it. And He starts radically transforming our life. As He gives us the knowledge that we obey, that produces fruit, Starts over again as we grow in the knowledge of Him. Paul is focused here just on the basic elements of the Gospel. You know what? This isn't rocket science. This isn't the higher truths of anything. This is just the Gospel. 
knowledge and power, thanksgiving, because of what we've been saved out of, and to whom we've been saved, and to what future we've been saved. That's all Paul's talking about here. These are grown-up prayers. This is how Paul the Apostle prayed for his friends. So a knowledge that transforms our life, a power that enables us to endure, a spirit of thanksgiving, all predicated, all based on the truth of what Christ has done for us. You know, this letter is all about what Christ has done for us, who He is and what He's done. It's crazy, it's so good. That's what He's done for us. And so we should live thankful lives. And if you look at your life, one, if you say, I'm not sure my sins are forgiven, guys, don't go another day, don't draw another breath until you've said, God Almighty, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior and I thank You for Jesus. And if you have, don't go another day. If there's an issue between you and God, put something to rest today. If you know God's been calling you to faithfulness in something you haven't done, it, obey today. Don't put it off. That's the difference between drawing near to God and not. It's the difference in growing in spiritual wisdom and understanding. Fruitfulness, endurance, and knowledge. It's obedience. Again, this isn't rocket science. This is the simple message of the Gospel. But for lack of faithfulness in the very simplest elemental things of the Gospel, for lack of that, the church isn't transformed. We're not transformed. If you want to live a thankful life, a joy-filled life, a peace-filled life, it's in Christ. It's available today. If you're a Christian, last word of challenge, obey, obey, obey. Uh, Kathy says I come across heavy-handed sometimes, just in case that's the case this morning. You know, sometimes uh, uh, we would tease our kids. We would say, we are the meanest parents on this block, and you're going to obey, because they were going to obey. There was no option here. We were really serious about that. You're going to obey. We're, we're going to make you. But uh, obeying can sound like a cudgel. I've got a cudgel. I've got a, a, a stiff piece of wood, and I'm saying to you, obey, obey, obey. That's not what God's saying. That's not the way it works. See, when we obey, we're joining God. When God calls us to obedience, we're joining Him. And because God's good, and because He's life, and because He's joy, when we obey, you know what we're doing? We're entering into more of God, and more of joy, and more of life. So, we may stiff-arm God on some issues of obedience, because we think we're, we're keeping life, but we're not. We're keeping life out. When we obey, we enter into more of God and into more of the fruits of the Spirit. We get more life. We don't lose life when we obey. Sometimes we think we're losing something. We're giving up. There's nothing God calls us to lose or to give up in obedience that isn't going to be magnified multiple times over in the fruitfulness and in the gifts and in the life we get because we obeyed. So obedience is the difference, folks, for most of us remaining baby Christians, praying baby Christian prayers, living baby Christian lives, to being full-grown versions, men and women of God, the grown-up version God calls us to be. Father, thanks for Paul's example of prayer. Thanks that he uh, led a praying life, that he prayed all the time. And God, would you simply remind us that We've been called into a fellowship and relationship with you. And that means dialogue. That means communication. That means prayer.
God, would you help us to grow? Not only in your grace, but in knowledge. Would you help us today, Lord, to obey you, either simply in obeying the gospel, forsaking our sins and embracing salvation in Christ, or Lord, by simply agreeing with you to do something your way, or to give up that thing that we've been holding on to, but simply to obey, Lord, to follow you, to grow in grace and knowledge and fruitfulness and more of you in Jesus' name.